You are listening to Pushing Beyond the Obvious, where we help entrepreneurs succeed. Uh, we have today with us John. So, John, uh, can I request you to introduce yourself, uh, some of the body of work that you have done so far, and how all of that has led you uh, to having this conversation with me? Sure, Mukesh. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I started my first company in '92. It was called Decisive Technology. It was the first company to automate surveys on the internet. Uh, it was a Windows app back in those days that worked by parsing text messages to pull out survey responses. This is before the web. Later, we came out with a web version, then a client-server version, then provided services. The company is now part of Google. It was acquired by DoubleClick. Uh, after uh, Decisive, I started a company called CustomerSat. Uh, that became a leader in enterprise feedback management. Uh, uh, that field automates the customer feedback process for large corporations and, and drives action on the feedback, opening cases, sending alerts. Uh, disseminating the feedback through dashboards and analytics throughout the enterprise. That company was acquired by Confirmant, uh, or it's now part of Confirmant. It was originally acquired by Market Tools. And then uh, I uh, co-founded my uh, a third company with my former CTO, Dickie Singh. Uh, that He's serving as CEO. That company is called Pies. Uh, we just introduced our product uh, uh, Two months ago, uh, it provides uh, a mobile intelligence intelligence platform for mobile apps. And what that means is uh, the Pies, P-Y-Z-E applet uh, serves as the eyes and ears for a mobile app. So those are the three companies I've founded or co-founded in the last 25 years. Five years ago, I decided to try to distill everything I'd learned over the last 20, then 20 years uh, in a book. Uh, and that uh, was or became uh, Unleash Your Inner Company, which was published last October. And that is how I uh, got to know you as well, because I got um, uh, the opportunity to uh, start reading that book. Uh, so uh, before we even go there, I mean, I would like to understand um, what kind of an upbringing did you have, uh, which led you to start one company after the other? Well, I like to say I had a great advantage starting my first company, and that is I was fired from my previous job. Uh, Why doesn't that surprise me? You, sometimes you just need a push to get out of the nest. Uh, and uh, it actually makes me realize that people are much more likely to be successful starting their own business if they, uh, than they tend to realize. Uh, and if I can do it, being pushed suddenly out of the nest and having to sink or swim and, and learn how to swim, you can do it. Your radio listener can do it if they do uh, just a little bit of planning while they're still employed by uh, their previous employer. Uh, that makes the whole transition much smoother and, and easier. So... Um, uh, as, as far as my upbringing goes, I'm the first male in my family to get a bachelor's degree, um, but uh, my uh, parents both felt education was, was really important and uh, both uh, pushed uh, my sister and me to uh, uh, be serious about schoolwork and 
And uh, so both of us uh, ended up with, uh, with uh, college degrees. So you were the younger one or the elder one? I am, I am the younger one. Okay, so, so <laughs> that also explains, I mean, uh, I read this book, uh, Originals by Adam Grant, and one of the things that they talk about is younger siblings uh, tend to be more rebellious and hence more entrepreneurial as well. So, <laughs> again, shows uh, that they are not very far off from, from reality as well. I also had a similar path. Uh, uh, I was the first person in my uh, family to do a post-graduation. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so, and then... Uh, I did not uh, get fired, but uh, uh, I at some point in time in my first job realized that uh, uh, I need more independence uh, than I was given uh, in my first job. So I decided to quit and uh, start my own, uh, which I kind of ran for about two years. So ha having run businesses, multiple businesses, I'm sure that you would have had experiences which are kind of, you know, uh, push you to the uh, to the brim, you know. So some of the most difficult times, some of the most dark times uh, that entrepreneurs have to go through because you know entrepreneurship is all about uh, pushing through beyond these dark times. So can you tell us something about one or two of your toughest experiences as an entrepreneur and uh, what what and how did you push through them? Let me take you back to the dot com bust of 2000-2001. Uh, the internet uh, became commercially available in the early 90s for the first time and uh, billions of dollars was invested throughout the 90s to productizing it and commercializing it. Uh, that was the dot-com boom and all of that climaxed in 1999 and early 2000 and that huge boom uh, overinvestment collapsed in 2000 and 2001. I'd started CustomerSat in 1997, and we were self-funded for the first three years of our business, and uh, we uh, did our first round of financing in 2000, and we're planning on closing our second financing in 2000, early 2001. Well, in the first quarter of 2001, I would often wake up in sweat-soaked sheets at 2 a.m., sticking to my skin. Our second round refused to close. It would not close, despite flurries of meetings with investors uh, as we ran out of cash. Those nights I would get up, shower, and try to get back to sleep. Uh, when our management team and I finally realized that the Series B round was not going to close, we huddled to figure out what to do. First, we cut our own salaries, and then a few weeks later, those of all of our employees by 10%. Agonizing and debating over every individual, we laid off 40% of our workforce, 40% of the company that I'd spent the last three years of my life building. When I uh, assembled our remaining employees immediately after to explain to them that this was the only way we could stay afloat and stay together, I felt my composure collapsing and I broke down sobbing in front of our employees. They stood there, stunned, sympathetic, and embarrassed that their CEO was crying in front of them. Prior to that, we our revenues had been on a steep growth curve. Uh, and at first, it looked like, or seemed like, we would avoid the dot-com bust, which had killed off so many startups in the year 2000. 
But it finally hit us in the first quarter of 2001. We were on a recurring revenue model and uh, software as a service, and many of our clients' contracts uh, expired on December 31st of 2000, and simply they did not renew or they quit paying. To help us get through, one of our investors lent me $300,000 for the company, but not to the company, meaning that I the CEO and founder would be personally liable for repaying the loan. Later, I would repay that investor, to whom, despite the arrangement, I was deeply grateful by mortgaging my townhouse in Menlo Park, California. The second quarter, that first quarter of 2001, our revenues dropped by 20%. That's a lot for a recurring revenue model. The second quarter, our revenues fell again. This time, I reduced my salary to minimum wage the legal limit. To help us make payroll, we factored receivables. That is, we sold our future receivables for present cash at about a 20% discount, an expensive maneuver. And to save on rent, we uh, leased out the more attractive ground floor of our building and consolidated in the less attractive second floor. The startup that rented out the first floor from us uh, paid us rent, uh, for 30 days and, and then quit paying us rent and then uh, came in late one weekend night cleared out all their belongings and disappeared without a trace the nightmare would not end finally we could see profitability ahead in the third quarter of 2001 and then as you know terrorists on September 11th attacked the World Trade Center other targets in the northeast, the entire U.S. northeast communications grid was down. It took an entire day just to confirm that all of our employees were still alive. The next day, I was finally able to send out a message. All customer sent employees are safe. We were in Silicon Valley, 3,000 miles away from the terrorist attacks in California. But even there, Every company I know had clients or customers who lost employees or family members in the attacks. One of our clients was Akamai Technologies, who lost their brilliant co-founder, uh, Danny Lewin, uh, in the terrorist attacks. If the dot-com bust of, uh, of 2000 and 2001 did not kill a company, almost certainly the terrorist attacks did. Well, we did not make a profit in the third quarter of 2001. We did break even in the fourth quarter. We did not hire a single new employee for 18 months. And the going kept tough for the next two to three years. But we made it through. And the company was acquired uh, by uh, in the first quarter of 2008. And often I've wondered, why did customer sense survive when so many other companies failed? I absolutely don't think we were smarter than other management teams. We absolutely did not have more in the way of resources than other companies did. We only raised $3 million, which even back in those days was not that much. If I had to narrow it down to two factors, I would say it was these. First, we cared more deeply about our company than other management teams did about all aspects of it, about the coolness of our products, about the satisfaction of our customers, and about each other, more so than other companies did. And two, we stuck with it longer than other companies did. As I mentioned, it was another seven years before the company was acquired. Many other companies simply threw in the towel 
uh, before then. So in summary, I'd say it was this combination of passion and perseverance that got us through. We hear a great deal about passion today. Every uh, business book talks about the importance of passion. We hear less about perseverance. And no one is talking about how the two reinforce each other, how they form a positive feedback loop. Passion is an attitude, and perseverance is a behavior. And in many aspects of our lives, our attitudes and behaviors reinforce each other. They form a positive feedback loop. Uh, if I just stick with something long enough so that I start to get good at it and then start to like it and then start to love it, that's an example of perseverance driving passion. Conversely, if I already like something, you know how the hours can go by like minutes. It's easy to persevere in those circumstances. That's an example of passion driving perseverance. So you can see how the two reinforce each other. And if you can think of any aspect of your life where you've experienced this positive feedback between passion and perseverance, that's very likely a really good area to consider starting a company. Whenever we see outstanding performance in any realm of life, in sports, in uh, finance, in scholarship, in investing, academics, entrepreneurship, you name it, almost certainly the positive feedback between passion and perseverance is at work. And that's the name of the first chapter of my book, Unleash Your Inner Company, Passion and Perseverance, A Positive Feedback Loop. That's so. That's uh, uh, number one. Uh, I must uh, uh, say that uh, the kind of uh, things that you should have gone through um, during those uh, times, and uh, the way you stuck it out, is really uh, uh, you know something that uh, is a is. Uh, I'm not. A, I'm not getting the words right, but uh, that's something that is a. Testament uh, to uh, what you just said, you know, which is passion and perseverance. Uh, this is again something that people in today's time do not understand because I know so many people who start a company uh, uh, based on an idea that they have. Um, they try it out, maybe you know, for a few months, and uh, six weeks, eight weeks, um, uh, you know, twenty weeks down, they they think that you know, okay, this is not working out. Let's just close this and move to the next idea. And the next idea, and the next idea, and the next idea, they never give enough time for their business or for their ideas to actually flourish or give them a chance at success because they, they just keep moving from one idea to the other. And when I tell them that, okay, why don't you stick with a particular problem that you are trying to solve, um, they, are, they, they, they don't have the patience nor the perseverance to uh, stick it through, and which, um, which, I, which is sad. Because, you know, uh, there was a time probably till about one, one year back that uh, uh, it was much easier for people to get funded, at least in India. Uh, if you had a decent idea, you, you got uh, your first round of funding pretty easily. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then the second round and the third round never materialized because no one wants to stick it through. Uh, and you rightly talk about passion and perseverance being a feedback loop. Uh, what people also fail to understand is that, you know, in order for any success to happen, uh, you need to have multiple such feedback loops, positive reinforcing feedback loops going in order to actually succeed at anything worth uh, succeeding at. So, you, since we are talking about uh, uh, what you've written uh, or, or, or about your book, you also talk about 10 steps um, for someone to discover uh, launch and scale a business. I under, I know intuitively that anyone can start a business, 
but um, you seem to have a framework which people can actually use uh, to decide uh, how and when and in what area should someone launch a business and scale it so can you just talk a little bit about that yes within areas that you're you've experienced passion and perseverance uh, there are only two things you need to start a business and make it a success first a real unsatisfied customer need and second, an advantage for satisfying that need. Now, there are thousands, millions, potentially an infinite number of real unsatisfied customer needs in areas you're passionate about. Uh, and the book helps you recognize them. You have to confirm that they're real and unsatisfied. And the book, Unleash Your Inner Company, shows you how to do that. And then you have lots of advantages to start a company and make it a successful, make it a success, many more than you realize. Uh, but the two are like puzzle pieces. They have to fit together. And so, so, it's so before, before you move, so can you just break uh, as to know what do you mean by advantage uh, uh, to satisfy that particular customer? What do you mean by that? Your advantages are a subset of all of your resources that are applicable to satisfying a particular customer need. And those resources are a subset of all of the resources you bring to bear. You have many more resources uh, than you realize. I use the acronym STARS to think about and remember all of your resources. That's uh, your skills the technologies that you know about, your assets, your physical, financial, and knowledge-based assets, your achievements, your relationships, your reputation, and your strengths, as in inner strengths. That spells the word STARS with two A's and two R's. And something that is a really worthwhile exercise for anyone, regardless of where you are in life, whether you want to start your own business or not, is to take out a big sheet of paper and make seven columns on it. And at the head of each column, put one of those letters or one of those words and write down as many of, of those uh, resources that you have that you can think of, that you bring to bear. Uh, put down the ones that seem business-oriented as well as the ones that don't seem business-oriented. If you like to bake desserts or play the guitar or you know you're an expert at scuba diving, put those down under skills, even if they don't seem very relevant. We will use this chart throughout the 10-step process to assess the fit between each customer need that you've identified and your advantages to see where the fit is the best. The best fits will be making stronger and stronger by of finding the right co-founder, developing your skills, finding the right team members, developing prototypes, and so forth. Finally, we'll narrow it down to the one best fit, and that's the company where you're the, uh, that you launch and scale up, and that's where you're most likely to be successful. And that, in a nutshell, is the 10-step process. It starts with, what are you passionate about? And what are unsatisfied customer needs in areas that you're passionate about? Those are the first two steps going all the way through to step number 10, which is scaling up the uniquely differentiated business that you've created.
Interesting. So, one of the things that a lot of entrepreneurs uh, uh, struggle uh, in their journey is uh, actually scaling up their business. It's easy uh, when you have an idea uh, or when you've identified a particular customer need to create a, a solution uh, to satisfy that customer need. And you know you have a segment of uh, one uh, customer segment, one customer segment, one product. Uh, uh, you are the founder, you are the sales guy, you are the development guy to go ahead convince people with passion and with uh, you know your raw raw energy. But as as the business grows, it becomes extremely difficult for uh, uh, founders to actually scale their business because they find that number one uh, they they run into multiple challenges. So, what according to you is probably the most important skill that as a founder or as a co-founder one need to uh, have or develop in order to be able to scale businesses? Or are there any strategies that you have uh, seen that work the best when it comes to scaling a business? Well, first, I think it's important to understand that any business, no matter how modest, can be evolved and scaled into a large business if you want to do so. Remember that all of the world's largest, most successful companies were once startups just like you. Uh, Apple and Google first operated out of garages. McDonald's started as a single restaurant. Walmart started as a single variety store. Starbucks was a single coffee shop. Facebook started in a dorm room. All of these enterprises started with a single customer. So what is scalability? Scalability is the ability to grow your business uh, in a way that uh, has enjoys increasing revenue or profit for each additional dollar of capital invested. And broadly, there are two ways that you can make your business more scalable. One is by uh, improving your operational performance, that's execution, and two is by adopting a more scalable business model. And and you can do both, and, and, and you should constantly be thinking about uh, doing both. There's much more written on improving your operational performance uh, than there is on adopting a more uh, scalable business model. For example, streamlining processing of purchase orders and, and uh, handling invoices is a way to improve operational performance. But adopting a more business, a scalable business model would be eliminating the purchase orders and invoices in the first place and uh, doing business in some fashion that doesn't require all of that uh, labor. For example, uh, using uh, credit cards and debit cards. Um, having, making your sales force more efficient is a way of improving operational performance. But eliminating the sales force and letting the customers place their own orders online would be a way to adopt a more scalable business model. Uh, making your tech support operations more efficient uh, would be a way of improving operational performance. But eliminating tech support and incentivizing, recognizing, and certifying customers to support each other would be adopting a more scalable business model. So uh, you, you see how uh, the two, both of them are, are important. Uh, to make really big strides, uh, probably... Uh, may require adopting a more scalable business model. Ways to 
adopt a more scalable business model include incorporating more intelligence into your product, using customers to do what your employees have previously done, and using contractors rather than employees. Uh, so when we think of the most scalable businesses in the world, what are some of them? Uh, well, Google, Facebook, uh, Uber, uh, Airbnb. Uh, let's take Uber, for example. Uber uh, doesn't own any uh, vehicles. It doesn't employ any drivers. Uh, it partners with drivers who have good driving records who provide their own vehicles. Uh, and Uber has focused on coordinating and uh, providing information to enable drivers and uh, uh, passengers to find each other. Uh, so similarly, if there's a way that you can use partners who bring their own assets to the uh, business, uh, rather than have to buy those assets yourself, then you can make your business, that'll help make your business more scalable. Airbnb is another beautiful example. Um, the people provide their own uh, extra bedrooms uh, to provide lodging to people. Um, they don't own any hotel properties. Uh, they uh, simply rely on their uh, contractors to do it, their, their partners to do it. So uh, these are some of the ways to, to make your business scalable. Uh, incidentally, another way uh, is by introducing network effects. And in both of these examples, Uber and uh, Airbnb, we see network effects. Both of these are what we call two-sided networks. There are two different groups who attract each other. And the more of each of those users you have, uh, the more it attracts more of the other type of users. So the more drivers that Uber has, the more uh, uh, passengers it attracts because the passengers know that there will be a car readily available. And the more passengers there are, uh, the more that encourages people to sign up as drivers with Uber because they know that there'll plenty, be plenty of business for them. Uh, and so in the book, I lay out ways, uh, a step-by-step -step process by which any company can enjoy network effects. It may start out uh, with just uh, introducing your customers to each other so that uh, they uh, share information with each other and then creating events where you can have all of your customers come and meet, uh, making your website a destination where they can learn about the field of whatever product or service it is that you offer. And then finally, if you can think of a way to introduce a complementary uh, uh, user set to yours, uh, then you can you have the potential to turn it into a two-sided business. So, for example, if you sell to uh, or you, if you offer services to composers, if you could, a natural companion community there might be lyricists. If you um, uh, sell services to dentists, a natural companion community there would be uh, uh, 
orthodontists. For, for plumbers, it might be uh, woodworking craftsmen and so forth. Uh, so these are all ways that uh, you can enjoy network effects uh, in, in your business. Interesting. So that sounds like, uh, I mean, there are a lot of things that you spoke about which uh, uh, some of the business owners don't even consider or don't even think about. Looks like there are a lot more resources than, than uh, we realize when it comes to actually leveraging uh, uh, um, them for scale, right? So you also talk about this in your book. So are, is there anything else that you would like to add when it comes to, uh, you know, the kind of resources that we have, uh, we think we have and versus what reality is? Well, as I said before, we have many more resources to start a company and, and make it successful than we tend to realize. And the, uh, the STARS chart that I mentioned is one uh, way to inventory and catalog all those resources. In fact, one of my favorite stories is uh, happened 400 years ago near what is now Hyderabad, India. And 400 years ago, a wealthy farmer there was approached by a ancient Buddhist priest who told the farmer that if he could find diamonds, he could become the wealthiest man in the world. Well, the farmer, despite the considerable wealth that he already enjoyed, got very excited about this idea and decided to go for it. And so he sold his farm, bought diamond equipment, assembled a team, and spent the next 20 years traversing the vast North African, European, and Asian continents in search of diamonds. He found none. And after 20 years, starving, discouraged, penniless, afflicted, he stood on a great cliff overlooking the Mediterranean. A huge wave came up, and in his utter desperation, he leapt into the wave, disappeared beneath its foaming crest, and was never to be seen again. Meanwhile, the guy who bought his farm was out tending to the fields. There was a stream that ran through one of those fields, and he noticed an unusual black stone in the stream. He was curious about it, so he reached in, pulled it out, and noticed that it had what looked like an eye that reflected the colors of the rainbow. He thought that was unusual, so he brought it back to the farmhouse, put it on a table, and just forgot about it. Sometime later, that same ancient Buddhist priest who told the first farmer about diamonds stopped by for a visit. And when he was there, he saw the stone and got very excited to recognize a diamond in its original unprocessed form. And he asked the man, are there any other diamonds like that? And the man didn't know. So together the two men ran, ran out to the fields and discovered that the fields were literally covered with those black stones. They were covered with diamonds, acres and acres of diamonds. 
that farm would become Golconda, near what is today Hyderabad, India, the most prolific diamond mine in history, from which the crown jewels of England and Germany and many other heads of state were mined. If the first farmer had just realized all of the resources that he had, he would have been the wealthiest man in the world. Similarly, each and every one of us has acres of diamonds. These are our stars, our skills, the technologies we know about, our physical, financial, and knowledge-based assets, our achievements, our reputation, our relationships, and our strengths, as in our inner strengths. And we just have to realize how to apply them uh, to, to start a company and make it successful. And that's the process that my book walks you through. So based on whatever you've said, I think uh, uh, what you're trying to tell uh, and what you're trying to uh, talk about is that you know anybody can actually start and uh, be successful as an entrepreneur. Is that what uh, you're trying to say? Because there is a lot of uh, uh, literature around which talks about, you know, not everyone can be an entrepreneur. There are some people who do not have what it takes to be an entrepreneur. There are certain skills or there are certain kind of people only uh, those kind of people can actually be successful at entrepreneurship. So, so I mean, where do you stand in this and what are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a very strong opinion on that. And that is that anyone who deeply aspires to, who has passion and perseverance, can start their own business and make it a success. Here's the proof. If we go back 15 or 20,000 years, there were no paid vacations. There were no salaries or health benefits. All of us were entrepreneurs. We were either hunters or gatherers or weavers or, or tool makers or craftsmen in some fashion. Back in those days, the easier alternatives uh, that we have today are not, were not available. And so we all had to be entrepreneurs to survive. Well, I believe we still have those instincts inside of us. And the, way, the reason they're not expressed is because it's, we have either easier options today uh, th that we can choose. But if those easier options were not available, I think you'd see many more, more of us becoming entrepreneurs. Interesting, interesting take on, on that. So one of the things that a lot of entrepreneurs also struggle uh, is when it comes to funding their enterprise, right? So because uh, a lot of people say that, you know, I have a lot of ideas, I have brilliant, uh, I have identified a need, I know how to solve a need, I'll solve that, but I don't have uh, the funds that it requires uh, for me to set up and start and uh, run a business. So uh, I know that you talk about funding as well. So uh, number one uh, is you know how easy or difficult it is to fund an enterprise. Uh, number two, when you when you talk about funding, um, um, the first thing that people come or think about is venture funding. So there are a lot of other ways and means to fund an enterprise as well. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, first let me talk about how to fund your business until you're ready to raise money. And then let me talk about the best times in your company's life cycle to raise money. So, uh, incidentally, most entrepreneurs try to raise money. Who try to raise money do so 
before they're ready. And as a result, they waste a lot of time. The deal does not come together. And they make a poor first impression on potential investors. It would be much better if they used that time to build their businesses rather than to try to raise money. In contrast, if you wait until the right time, uh, the deal comes together quickly. You make a favorable impression on potential investors and uh, you're in a stronger negotiating position and uh, you can get back to doing what both you and your investors want to do more quickly, which is continuing to build your business. So, first of all, how do you fund your business in the interim until you're ready? And two, when are you ready? So, how to fund your business? Well, three ways I lay out in the book. First of all, is living frugally yourself. And uh, in the book, I tell the story of my friend Nick Winters in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, a successful uh, entrepreneur who owns only 99 physical things. Uh, Two pairs of jeans, a laptop, a cell phone, a wedding ring, and so forth. In the book, I list all 99 things that Nick owns. And uh, it just shows how little we actually need to live. He enjoys all of the modern conveniences of entertainment and information, healthcare and so forth through his services on his iPhone, uh, uh, books and so forth. Uh, but uh, it, it just makes us realize how little we really need to survive. I have not taken it by any means to the extreme that Nick has, but I, it is true that whenever I throw or give away a whole bunch of items, I have a uh, new sense of freedom and space in my house, in my kitchen, in a closet, whatever. And uh, so living frugally is the first one. Two is providing services. This is how uh, I funded my second company uh, at the outset, Customer Sam. Uh, we had learned a great deal from my first company about providing surveys online. This was back in the 90s when it was still new technology to uh, do a survey online. And so we were able to do uh, surveys for large corporations uh, and make good money uh, that helped fund our development of our platform for my second company. <coughs> Excuse me. So providing services, especially if they're relevant to what your business is going to be doing, uh, is a good way to fund your business. You develop customer relationships, you learn about customer requirements, and you start to make, make a name for yourself in whatever field you've chosen. The third way is friends and family. And if they see that you're living frugally and see that you are providing services to your to prospective customers in the field, they'll see how serious you are about what you're doing. And that will make them receptive to at least considering uh, investing in your business or lending you money. So those are three ways that you can fund your business in the interim until you're ready to raise money. Now, when, when is the right time to raise money? It is 
right before and after, you either significantly reduce risk in your business from the investor standpoint, or right before and after, you significantly increase upside potential in your business. So what is a way to think about reducing risk? Well, a company goes through different life cycles, different stages of its life cycle, and each time you reach one of those stages, you eliminate previous risk. If you have positive cash flow, you've eliminated the risk that you can get revenue. If you have revenue, you've eliminated the risk that you can get customers. If you have customers, you've eliminated the risk that your product or service works. And if your product or service works, you've eliminated the risk that a concept or a prototype can be reduced to practice and so forth. So each time you reach one of these stages in your uh, company's uh, life, you have significantly reduced risk. And a really good time to approach investors is right before and after you've uh, achieved one of those milestones. So uh, consider this. Let's say you're very confident that you're going to achieve one of those milestones in the next 90 days. Let's say you will um, uh, have your first profitable quarter or you'll deliver your product to customers or you'll sign your first major account agreement. Great. Go to the investors, lay out customer need you satisfy, your team, your, your uh, advantage, your resources, uh, uh, and so forth, and uh, tell them that uh, in the next uh, 60 to 90 days you will reach this milestone and say that you'd like to come back to them after the, you've done that. And then go do it and come back after you've achieved what you said you were going to do. This way, you start building your relationship with, and credibility with your prospective investor even before uh, they invest in you. And they may or may not invest in you on that round, but they'll remember, oh, you were the guys who said you were going to do X and did do X. And uh, that'll be very impressive and memorable. Um, so those those are half of the opportunities. Uh, the other good uh, half of the opportunities are right after you significantly increase upside potential from the investor standpoint. Now, how do you do that? Well, one of the techniques I lay out in the book is called the bowling pin model. And that is each opportunity that you address is like a bowling pin. And it helps you knock down other bowling pins, bigger bowling pins. So your first bowling pins are likely to be small, smaller, and your later bowling pins will be larger. Uh, for example, if uh, you're starting your business in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I live, maybe you start with a particular neighborhood, for example, South of Market in San Francisco. After you've achieved a good penetration and success in that neighborhood, then you expand to all of San Francisco. From there, you might expand to Oakland or to San Jose adjacent cities, and then from there to other cities outside of the San Francisco Bay Area. Each one of those cities is like a bowling pin that helps you not knock down that bowling pin because you have knowledge, experience, brand awareness, and so forth. Another way 
that you can think of the bullet pins is vertical market applications. Uh, so it may be that the first uh, bully pin that you walk over uh, is uh, the financial services sector. Uh, but, and, and the next one might be uh, high-tech companies, and then the next one might be retail, and then the next one might be telecom and support. I might be there in a different order from that. But each time you use your brand awareness, experience, and knowledge in one segment to help you conquer the next segment. Well, the way that you persuade investors of your upside potential is to uh, be able to demonstrate that uh, by knocking down one bowling pin, you're already starting to knock down the next bowling pin. So let's say that your initial uh, market is technology companies, but you just sold your first deal to a financial services company. Great. That helps build the case that uh, the upside potential really is there and that if you can, uh, with additional uh, capital, you can be successful in, in not knocking down. The, 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 the better the case that you can make that you can knock down the whole stream uh, of employees, the better. Uh, so those are uh, some points on the best points to raise venture capital. Very, very interesting. Um, so, so if I kind of summarize, it says, you know, the best time to go to a venture capitalist from a funding perspective is either when you significantly reduce risk for them or significantly yes. increase their upside potential, both of exactly. which actually makes it a no-brainer for an investor to actually give you money. Yes, and in that way, you're most likely able to reach, be able to reach agreement on valuation too, because... Uh, they will perceive the value in the company, and very often the, in, the entrepreneur has a higher assessment of value in of the company than the investor does. So it's it's a negotiation, and and this makes it most likely that there'll be overlap between your two assessments. Super. So you also talk about growing your mind from the inside out in your book. So what do you mean by that? That chapter in Unleash Your Inner Company is full of suggestions for deliberately building your self-confidence. It's hard to start your own business. You will face many obstacles, uh, like the ones that I mentioned early on, where we had to lay off employees and cut back salaries and factor receivables and so forth. And so it gives you a series of tips for uh, building your self-confidence. Let me give you one example. Uh, if there is some aspect of your, yourself that you genuinely cannot change, find a way to view it as an asset. Here's an example. When I was in my mid-30s, I accepted the fact that I'm gay. Many people would not view that as a strength from a business standpoint. I disagree. For me, it has been a strength for five reasons. Number one, when you're growing up gay, you know unambiguously, with absolute certainty, that at least some of the world's routine assumptions are wrong. People routinely assume that guys are attracted to gals and vice versa, don't they? You know, if you're gay, that that assumption is not universally correct. And so, 
being gay has helped me not necessarily accept the status quo and to think outside the box. And that's made me a better entrepreneur, manager, and executive. Two, I'm not a minority in any sense that I can think of other than being gay. And so it has sensitized me to some of the challenges that minorities face. Three, uh, it wasn't socially acceptable to be openly gay when I was growing up. And so at least some of the energy I might have put into dating, I put into sports and career and studying instead. Uh, today, 30 years later, I am hugely enjoying the benefit of that, that early investment. Maybe I wouldn't have gone to MIT if I hadn't been gay. Uh, four, when people see I'm trying to hide my sexual orientation, uh, they see I'm being open and honest, and that helps build trust between us. And five, I think it further conveys that I, I have strength in reserve if I can be open about the fact that I'm gay. So similarly, if there is some aspect of yourself that you genuinely cannot change, find a way to view it as an asset. Set the bar very high. Don't use this as an excuse to accept some aspect of yourself that you can change and would like to change. But if you genuinely cannot change it, if you can find a way to view it as an asset, that aspect of yourself uh, will be become one of your assets and it will be hugely empowering for you as it was for me. A few years ago, I was telling this exact same story uh, to a group of undergraduates in Guatemala. And, and as I spoke, about halfway back in the auditorium, there was a young man sitting, and he slowly raised his hand, his fist, to his chest and pressed it against his chest. And at first, I thought it was a small gesture of agreement or support for what I was saying. But then, when I looked again, I saw that he wasn't making a fist at all. His hand had no fingers on it. And I imagine he was saying, this I cannot change. This is my strength. Similarly, if there is some aspect of yourself that you genuinely cannot change, find a way to view it as a strength and it will become one of your strengths. So that, I think, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, not only is it inspiring, but also um, extremely critical uh, for success because as long as you keep using uh, that part of your personality as an excuse for not doing certain things, uh, it only creates a downward spiral which gives you more and more opportunity to create more and more excuses uh, and not actually go after what you truly are capable of. So a great story and I think a, a, a great um, a learning for all of us which is to you know identify and what accept us as, as we are and use these things as our strengths. Uh, and not, uh, uh, you know, uh, not uh, hide uh, under them and create excuses around them. 
So I think we are coming to uh, uh, the end of time that we have, uh, John. Uh, uh, two final questions that I always um, ask all the guests on the show. One is, uh, what are you doing to continually improve upon yourself um, uh, for your self development? And number two uh, is another show is called Pushing Beyond the Obvious. So, what is so obvious to you which uh, people miss and which makes you go, ah? Why do people don't see your, see this? Well, uh, so two questions there. The first was, what am I doing to continually improve myself? And I'm always learning. I'm, a, I'm going to conferences. I'm reading. I find that, for me, a really good way to clarify my own thinking and understanding on the subject is to write it down. And uh, I, I like to write articles for my own benefit because it forces, if I, if I can understand something uh, clearly enough that uh, I, I can write about it, then uh, that's one of the ways I've learned it. So uh, if you look at my columns on, in Forbes, on Forbes.com, most of them I wrote uh, to clarify my own thinking on a subject like uh, what are different ways of innovating or what is the impact of regulation on innovation? Uh, two was what is something that's so obvious that we tend to overlook it? I would say it. the first thing that comes to my mind is look for and find the good in the people around you. Uh, the uh, We've seen how it's important to look for and find the good in yourself, in the example that I gave. That helps turn whatever quality it is in yourself that you cannot change into an asset. Uh, similarly, it works for other people too. People want to be around people who can see the good in them and help them build that good. Uh, and so even if we see just a glimmer of perseverance or good judgment or courage in someone else, letting, letting them know that we see it, acknowledging it, uh, helps build that quality in them. And incidentally, that attracts good people to us because people want to be around other people who see those uh, strengths and help them build them in them. And that elevates us to a position of leadership among uh, other people. So that's the, the first thing that comes to my mind. It's something that's so obvious but uh, often overlooked. So I, I, I remember someone uh, telling me that, uh, you know, uh, it's very easy to find faults in others, but it takes a lot of intention and self-discipline to find what is good in others. I, I agree. I agree <laughs> with that. Yes. Anyway, so thanks a lot, John, for spending this time with us. I think uh, I have learned a lot. Uh, I hope uh, the listeners will learn a lot as well. Um, so thanks a lot for spending this time with us. Mukesh, may I just mention that the book, Unleash Your Inner Company, is available on Amazon. Uh, it can be, uh, it's available in both the hardback version and Kindle, uh, which can be used on an iPad or an Android uh, device or iPhone or, or whatever. So, so I will link to those uh, uh, to the Amazon uh, links uh, directly for your book uh, as part of the 
uh, podcast as well. And uh, if you can tell where people can connect with you, that will be uh, kind of even better. Okay, great. Uh, the website is www.unleashyourinnercompany.com. My own website is www.johnchismventures.com. Uh, that's C-H-I-S-H-O-L-M. And uh, my email is john at johnchismventures.com. Super. So thanks a lot for spending this time with us. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pushing Beyond the Obvious. If you like the show and would like to support, please head over to iTunes or wherever you are listening to this show and rate us and write a review. Till next time, have fun.